1: Our documentary, O'Sullivan Bera, brings us back to that period of Irish history after the defeat of the Gaelic faction at the Battle of Kinsale in 1601. The Munster general, Donal O'Sullivan Bera, has been left virtually single handed to engage superior enemy forces. Unable to resist any longer, he decides to leave his homeland and retreat to the relative safety of Ulster. The attempt to recreate this epic journey involves an imaginary monologue recited by the dying chieftain victim of a quarrel in Spain. It also includes latter-day historical and folklore accounts collected along the route of the escape.
2: You you must remember, when they left San they hadn't even one day's supply of food. They had to depend on herbs, grass, whatever they could find, whatever they could take on the way. And apart from the physical effort of (coughs) travelling 300 miles on foot, a lot of them wounded and helping the sick and all that, but apart from the physical effort, even the uh, best health was uh, badly fed, and then having to fight all the way. I think it was, it was a triumph, really. The, the whole march was a triumph. That as uh, you said, that as anybody that anybody survived, but that I, I think that in all the marches, we hear a lot about. We say all North March to, to conceal, or uh, Red hue March to conceal. You remember when they came to Holy Cross, and they found that, uh, that the enemy were waiting for them at, at at I think it was clear, wasn't it? And um, that they decided they left the campfire burning, and luckily for them that the frost intervened and, and hardened the countryside, and they, they walked forty miles, not no, forty miles, non-stop. As a matter of the enemy said, I think it was said at the time, it was never known before in the army. But he was he was uh, a Sullivan Bears after fighting 60 Irish miles after fighting a battle at Ockram on empty stomachs. I think it was, it's unparalleled in this country, and I think it would, it would make a tremendous film. To my mind, the whole march was a triumph. It was the end result, I think, the real failure came after that because after resting at at." Or uh, O'Rourke, with O'Rourke, and uh, he gathered together, some, some he had some 300 men, he was joined by Maguire, I think, and he got some 300 men whom he was able to pay with the Spanish gold that he had, and they marched on to, uh, to Dungannon to join O'Neill, to find that O'Neill had gone to Mellifant to sign the treaty with Elizabeth and with uh <coughs> not knowing that Elizabeth was dead when he signed. Now, one of the... <coughs> pardon me. One of the... Uh, articles of the treaty were that all those who took part in O'Neill's wars, you know, and joined with O'Neill, they were to be pardoned, and uh, some of them get their land, I suppose. But of all the people that, who had helped him, the one man that refused a pardon for was a Sullivan Bayer. He, uh, he got away to Spain and I think he got a pension there from the King of Spain. But uh, one day, some years afterwards, he was uh, I think he was going to Mass or he was in at Mass when there was a dispute between two Irish Amaganti He came out and uh, he went between them. One fella put his sword through a bear, I think to me the, the the whole failure of the thing that the fact that after doing having done all that endured all that hardship and that all that epic march and all that to find that it was all in vain so far that O'Neill had gone and I think the end to like all like all great tragedies I'm in that end, that final ending when after the end, all the times are over, and its failure at the end, you know it was it was like fate. It like, nearly like the history of Ireland itself.
3: The story is done. A pity the end tarnished the glitter. Did I survive all that simply to arrive at such a casual, arbitrary end? You're a fool, O Sullivan, to have thought yourself set apart. Perhaps it's a fitting reward for your presumption. And yet, it always seemed to have some design it. Something more than a mixture of cunning and luck. Is it perverse of me to regret cheating death at the hands of the English Queen? She she made a sort of peace with them all. An English peace. But not with me. Not even an English peace. Not one false promise. Nor one attractive lie. That message was clear enough. No terms for O'Sullivan bear. Seek out the untrodden paths, O'Sullivan. Follow the unworn ways or your next rest will be eternal. And yet the whole thing could have been avoided. Kinsale was the turning point. Long before Kinsale there was no going back. But after Kinsale there was no going forward either. We let an opportunity slip. The enemy between the hammer and the anvil. They would have starved there, waiting for the blow that never should have fallen. But when it did, the hammer's stroke was unsure, the anvil unsteady. And then the scattering. The rending of the faction. O'Neill to the north, O'Donnell to Spain. Myself to the fastness of Bera, Watching the countryside burn while I waited. Clemency. That was for others. It suited them to become retainers of the victor, temporary client princelings, practising their new discovered loyalty upon O'Sullivan. In the end, tenacity was not enough. The grip of our adversaries tightened. The birth card had to be severed. Security lay north. We were for Ulster.
1: December 31st, 1602. O'Donnell is dead, O'Neill is on the verge of defeat, and resistance in Munster to the forces of the crown is at an end. True to a promise made to the Spanish king, Philip II, the Gaelic chieftain, Donal o'Sullivan Bera, has held out against the English for as long as is feasible. Slowly his position has been eroded. The capture of his fortress at Dunboy has ended his access to the coastline and any hope of further help from Spain. The defection of the McCarthys and Tyrrell, his foremost general, has ensured his isolation in a remote mountain enclave. 5,000 men, most of them Irish, under the command of Sir Charles Wilmot, are advancing to cut off any possibility of retreat. Reluctantly, O'Sullivan is forced into the inevitable decision of withdrawing from Munster and retreating over 200 miles to Sanctuary in Ulster. He withdraws first to the area around Glengareth and makes rapid preparations for the escape. His wife and son are dispatched to safety and O'Sullivan collects about him 1,000 people who are prepared to undertake the march. Of these only 400 are fighting men, the rest women, children and the old. The speed of Wilmot's advance catches the chieftain unawares. The English commander makes camp within a few miles of Glengareth, and O'Sullivan advances his plans. He begins his journey with one day's supply of provisions. Wilmot bides his time, convinced his quarry is secure, and it's four days before he discovers that a has got away. In the meantime, the Irish general has led his followers along narrow winding paths through the snow-covered mountains, heading towards Gugon
3: Barra. The end is protracted. The twilight of hope and illusion lingers. Soon, however, the English wave threatens to engulf us, but Wilmot wishes to either savour his triumph fully or doubly assure the success of his venture. He stops short. The vultures descending to pick clean the bones are cheated of their prey and vent their anger on scraps and tatters. It's Christmas time, the season of goodwill and liberality, but the snow-capped hills are inhospitable tossed with the cold winds of suspicion and hostility. We are a thousand, but not a thousand strong. Women mainly, old men, small children, my own not among them, a ragbag motley patchwork. Movement is as rapid as the old and the sludge will allow. The night is raw and we are ill-fitted for exile, merely driven on by the knowledge of what waits behind. We know that we must be our own deliverers for now the jackal sleeps unprepared. His vigilance relaxes. The luxury of rest we cannot afford. We must precede expectation. We exchange the frenzied beauty of Glengariff for the angry remoteness of the crags. The warmth of the familiar gives way to the bleak and sullen wastes. Already peace is just a distant memory. A sort of callousness was born of our urgency a pettiness our souls were as numb as our senses the remorse of the exile was forgotten in the scrambles for survival was it through guilt or hardening of the spirit that we denied ourselves a backward glance grim and unsentimental our thoughts were on lower things
4: O'Sullivan oh, bear came over what is now called the Passive Caymania from Coomholla on his way northwards now, he didn't come through what is now known as Bellingeri village. He turned north before he came to through Caymanea and over the hills until he came to a place called uh, Akras. It would have been extremely difficult, and it's very hard to imagine how a stranger could actually do it. Now, I know the, country, the area around here fairly well, and I certainly wouldn't attempt it at night time myself, even though I know the area very well. Now, it's as you can see, it's very rough, mountainy and boggy land, and it must have been a, It was really a great feat to do it, to come here at all at night time. Uh, there's only one of the men I know that that did it, and that was uh, General Tom Barry, when he went out of Gogar into the Lingerif area at night time again. But I don't think even the local people wouldn't. Would, I'd say wouldn't try it at night time. It's too totally dangerous. Now in Achras, there's a, a ruins of a church. It's called in Achras, and he spent he camped there for the night. And of course, it was the custom, I suppose, with. Pot, Every number of horses they had, they released them. And uh, in the morning, when uh, they went out to run up their horses, O'Sullivan's white horse, who was, or which was called Kark, was missing. So eventually they found her, in, uh, drowned in a uh, bog hole. And since then, that bog hole has been called Asagh Kirke. There is a waterfall near it, and it's held that name since Asagh Kirke. Uh, well, from there on, he just spent the one night in that place and continued on northwards over Beale Atlanta. Into
1: at noon on January 1st, O'Sullivan and his followers reach the valley of Ballyvorne after an almost non-stop march. Here they kneel and pray at a local shrine for the success of their expedition before continuing their journey. After crossing the Solan River, they head into the hills once again. Their passage is contested. Members of the local McCarthy clan harass the column from the rear. For four hours, the advance continues with a rearguard action being fought until finally, Osulawan turns the main body of his forces to face the McCarthy's, who are quickly overpowered. The march is then resumed with the column keeping to the high ground and avoiding centres of population. In this way, Canturk and Newmarket are
5: bypassed. Well, when he was making his way up to all sides of the country, uh, he was supposed to have pitched his camp in O'Keeffe country, which is basically Doholla territory. But of course Duhalla was also split into another area, which is very important, the McAuliffe clan. Of course, they are natives of my own place, Marcus. And apparently he did camp there, but uh, he didn't have a very pleasant passage because the natives annoyed him throughout the night. And according to the contemporary accounts, they annoyed him rather by shouting and roaring at him rather than any damage that they actually did to him. Uh, They say that on the following day, O'Sullivan marched on by the the base of Schlieff-Lokra towards Limerick City. And on his way, he passed through Clan Alley, which embraces the base of Schlieff-Lokra. O'Sullivan's, or the O'Sullivan's, if you like, spent the second night, apparently, on the borders of O'Keeffe and McAuliffe countries. Now, there's a certain amount of fooster here as to whether the people in the area were hostile or friendly towards them. Uh, The camp was supposed to have been pitched in Dromskara, and Dromskara would be situated under borders of O'Keeffe and McAuliffe territories, but probably geographically within the O'Keeffe territory. Nevertheless, there would be bound to have been, McAuliffe being the important chieftains that there were, would be bound to have known that he was in the territory. Uh, tradition goes on to say that the O'Sullivan's were hospitably re- received by the McAuliffe's, even to the extent of entertaining them for three days. Which brings me to another point. O'Neill, when he came down, to bring together the clans of the South to, I suppose, support them when he was making his his move was reported to have met the clans of Duhalla which would have been or O'Callaghan and McAuliffe in Innescara and it's quite possible that uh, a friendship or a relationship struck up between O'Neill and McAuliffe and very it's as good a bet as any that he may have met O'Sullivan Baird there. The McAuliffe's ...who are a very hospitable outfit... ...could well have entertained them for three days. I know how hospitable they are... ...because I was lucky enough to marry one of them. But at the same time... ...they had enough trouble with the English... ...and they may not have... ...risked wasting another scrap... ...at that particular time. It's probable that they helped... ...either by supplying provisions... ...or helping them through or providing guides... ...because it's bad boggy territory... ...and they might have helped them along the road. When they left the territory of McAuliffe. They travelled by way of Bohar Bui to join the old Kerry Road near Klanfert. Now, there are still traces of this road there and it is still known locally as the old Kerry Road. As a matter of fact, uh, Trasne is the, the, the crossing place and it was, you know, a well-known way to go and come from Kerry. So, they passed through the Kerry Road near Klanfert. And this would have taken them through the village of Kilmacrohan, which, in fact, later became known as Newmarket. They went out through to Arrigal, and to Kilcorm, where they turned right, and probably went along the old road to Van Moor and Johns Bridge, which is over around Fremont. They were supposed to have be been attacked there by Barry of Lescarrol and Sir Hugh Cough. But in any event, they succeeded in crossing the River Elaw and got safely away from the MacAuliffe territory.
6: They came at the north side of the Balahouras, um came over from Cantor direction and uh, probably around Balahay or somewhere, maybe in that direction, um, came across into Limerick and, as I say, came along on the uh, northern side of the Balahauri hills, which run along the uh, Limerick Cork border, uh, up there on high ground looking out over the great plain of Limerick. Uh, dangerous territory, I'm sure, to travel through as far as they were concerned. They came then to Arpatrick, uh, a foothill of the Balahoras, there, a very conspicuous round green hill with the um, Balahoras uh, dark background there. And between Arpatrick and uh, the Balahoras, according to a tradition, some bit of local tradition that still survives anywhere they um, camped and um, it uh, prob- was, I'm sure, quite a safe retreat for him there. And uh, between R. Patrick and the two peaks there, Corry Govan, Black Rock, Blackrock, and uh, C. Finn, near Linnishine. Uh And um, the only thing that I ever heard of, you know, any, any um, trying to remind people of them coming from there was... A sword that was discovered in the vicinity of the campsite some years ago, and well, local people believe it could have been lost by one of uh, Sullivan's followers. So they set off from there, and uh, I remember hearing some time, maybe to somebody who read the thing, but anyway, um, you know, that they had um, just uh, they had to, to breakfast or to eat theirs and stain themselves and herbs and some very um you know, unpalatable um, you know things there into the of grasses and nettles and that so they started off from there then and they probably followed the uh, line of hills along there by the Riech and um cut off then uh, I'd imagine in the direction of Emly, somewhere along there, uh, keeping to the left of the modern town of the Prairie, going on in the direction of Limerick Junction, on to uh, Salahead, Sulcoed, the site of the famous battle where Brian Boru defeated the Danes, and uh, where in later time you had the, the Salahead ambush, 1919, and on the, to a place called Dunohill, There's a mott and bailey there, Norman Mott and bailey, and uh, on top of it there there is the remains of some kind of a tower. But apparently there was a granary there and quite a share of corn stored in it. And they seized the granary, uh, not without opposition, and indeed they were subjected to um, an almost continuous attack from the time they left R. Patrick until they got as far as the But they seized the granary there, and I'm sure they were ravenous, the hunger... And we were very pleased to find it. So, um, anyway, that was was, uh, one place where they must have been pleased to come on, or one one, uh, thing they were very glad to find. So, um, they ate their nough there, I'm sure. And uh, incidentally, across the road from that Martin Bailey at the Nohill where they uh, took the granary, is the burial ground of the North, and uh, Dan Breen is buried there. I remember being over there one day a couple of years ago and going across to see the burial ground. Now, where they went from there, I'm not sure, but uh, to the north of them was a great bulk of the Schlieffelm Mountains, you know, quite a formidable barrier there. Maybe they followed the line of the present road up to Hollyford and Milestone, Uh, through the hills or um, maybe they skittered them around the east going up by Barisoli and and that way but as I say uh, it's only surmise now with me and um, anyway they finally came to the Shannon
1: On the 6th of January the column, by now much depleted approached the river Shannon The safest point at which to cross the river was near where it entered Loch Derg but the river was wide and too deep to be forded O'Sullivan's enemies had prepared for his arrival. The Shannon had been rendered
3: apparently impassable. It was a hard road to the river. The harshness and the hunger skimmed off the dross that escaped the musket. For some it was death, for others delivery. We left our human wreckage by the wayside and inched on. Finally we reached our Rubicon. "'feeling of repressive gloom was overpowering. "'After the bogs and the mountain fastnesses, "'it should have come as a relief, "'the placid river tapering to a point in the distance. "'But our crossing was made "'without even the bolstering knowledge of safety in prospect, "'our ignorance of what might lie ahead being our only comfort. "'We were less than welcome to the watchers all round. "'They were as eager to impede us as as we were loath to cross.' It was almost amusing how the ciphers of the English scurried to defend their pathetic patrimony to maintain their vulgar possession intact. They discharged their offices well, but not quite well enough. They removed the boats but left the forests. It's in the nature of the hunt to improvise and we were soon afloat. Our scent reached England's hounds. The Queen's Mac Egan courageously attacked the women but once again the forest proved useful and Mac Egan was dispatched to his own special corner of hell. They fell away from us then preferring to stick discreetly to our backs like leeches.
2: When they arrived at, at, at the Shannon at, slightly north of Portumna the Mac Eagans, under the orders of Elizabeth, had defended the bridge against them. They couldn't cross at the bridge. Now they found that all the boats and ferries had been removed and uh, they camped in a wood, a place called Redwood, about three miles north of Portamna. At this stage, at the time of the year, the Shannon would be about a quarter of a mile wide. And uh, they decided the only hope they had of crossing was to uh, make boats or rafts to cross the Shannon. And for this purpose, they they slaughtered uh, most of their horses. And uh, with with O'Sullivan Bear, at this point, there were some of the O'Malays, there were mercenaries who had fought with them before that. And uh, they decided to make their own traditional type of raft, which is a kind of a coracle around the fair. Osullivan Bear's men made a, a long boat of about to be about 25 feet long, and uh, they formed the side with well branches and all that, and then covered the covered with the horses' skins. And here they had their first meal, really a first full meal of meat and the slaughter of the horse. Sullivan Bear himself refused to eat the horse flesh, but at all events they they crossed at night. It could take about 30. Soldiers at a time, and the O'Malley's raft was was unsuccessful because when they got into the current of the river, it capsized, and I think they were all drowned. But they ferried them across. I don't know how many trips they made, but they got them across. I knew, but then, when they got across on the far side, they were in O'Madden country, and here they were harassed by them. And just before they crossed, actually, they were attacked by M- MacEgan, seemed to be playing a double part. He was keeping in touch. by He just removed the car, but he didn't attack them directly, eh? although they were within a mile or so of his castle at the time. But I think he was keeping both sides going. He was kind of playing it cool and showing Elizabeth that he was fulfilling his duty as uh, as being on her side. So, um, but finally, uh, before they crossed, some of MacEgan's men were out for plunder, but they were... There were ten of them killed, and some of them, of uh, southern bears' men killed. But when he got to the Galway side of the Shannon, the O'Madden country, I they say, he was harassed again. But they beat off the attack, and they arrived near Kilimar to a place called Maharniula, and they camped there. Now, uh, luckily for them, some of the people in a small village near Kilimar, some of the people had fled at their approach. You see, the country, was, the country was near famine at this period. There hardly any part of Ireland, particularly Connaught, that wasn't on the brink. And the year before, you see, uh, O'Neill and O'Donnell's marched to the south. After all, they had come and here a lot of cattle. They had to feed themselves on the way, and it wasn't popular at that time. I couldn't imagine a farmer today, a now marching down, deadly to see his cattle taken away, even though we were far more prosperous than then, you see. But at all events, um, they came in a, a small village, probably a group of small little cottages, where the people had fled, and here they found some meal and some beer, and some of them had their first meal. For a, for a long time, and uh, they would, this would be now about eight miles, nine miles from Ockram But apparently they, they broke camp there in the early hours of the morning, and uh, they were on their march towards Ockram Now, at this stage of Sullivan Berry, 280 men, 80 soldiers in the vanguard and 200 in the rear guard with the baggage and the the civilians in between. They had lost, at this stage he had lost about 120 fighting men and uh, as they approached Ockram on the hill of Ockram, waiting for them knew they were coming, was a, a far, far superior force of English and Irish, of course in, there was a stockade on the hill of Auckland, I think, to St. Ruth's command post after the North Danish force. But there, there was a big crowd of rabble and um, on the hill waiting for them. They were led by uh, de Borgo, and although there was a de Borgo on the on Sullivan Bear side as well, but uh, Henry Malby, he'd be the son of the president of Connaught, who lived in the castle in Balanslough, he was their leader. But the Sullivan Bears... 80 men in the vanguard. Now these were all these were all very well trained soldiers, well armed and well disciplined. But unfortunately, when the with the beat of drum and the banners waving and all cheering, and the enemy attacked them, and uh, these fellows broke and fled. Now it was a very very dis- desperate situation because it 200 men. In equal combat, we say he would be well able for anybody that meet, but he wasn't the position. Now his vanguard broken, so uh, he addressed them.
3: Since on this day our desperate circumstances and unhappy fate have left us neither wealth nor country, nor children nor wives to fight for, but as on this instant the struggle with our enemies is for life, that alone remains to us. Which of you, I ask, in God's name? Would not rather fall fighting gloriously in battle and avenging your blood than like cattle, which have no sense of honour, perish unavenged in and cowardly flight? Surely our ancestors, heroes famed for their high courage, would never seek by a shameful flight to shun an honourable death, even when they could fly. For us it will be proper to follow in their footsteps, especially as flight offers no salvation. See the plain stretching far and wide, without hindrance of bog, without thick woods, without any cover to afford us concealment. The neighbouring people are no protection to us. There's none to come to our aid. The enemy blocked the roads and passes, and we, wearied with our long journey, are unable to run. Whatever chance we have is, in our own courage and the strength of our own arms, Up then and on them, whom you excel in spirit, resolution, tradition and faith. Let us remember this day that enemies who have everywhere attacked us have hitherto been routed by divine mercy. Above all, let us believe that victory is the gift of God. Let us think that Christ our Lord will be with us, his servants in their utmost need, and that for his name and holy faith we join issue with heretics and their abettors. Fear not the worthless mob of enemies, a rabble whose skill does not approach ours. Wherefore I do hope that they will turn tail when they shall see us heartily resist, even as I expect you will show your faith and courage.
2: He was a very skilful, I say, skilful leader because, they, I suppose they, It was five to one against. It was ten to one against them, really, but. Um, at once, the, the, the English charge, he, he had about 14 musketeers. They would, they would be armed now. With, he had gallop glasses, their, their, their chief weapon would be the battle axe. And uh, then the kern, the, the infantry, if you like, they would be armed. Some had muskets, some had uh, long spears, some had darts. We, we're not exactly certain, but probably a mix and gather. But they were very well skilled in the use of uh, whatever arms they had. Now he, the English charge, the enemy charged again, and, and uh, he he was by the way retreating in flight when he suddenly turned. You see, he had tried he had used this ruse several times before that. Turned suddenly when he appeared to be flying and uh, faced the enemy, and then his his um, his musketeers took got fourteen of them, shot fourteen of them in, in, in one one burst of fire. You see. But this had the effect of disconcerting, if, if you like, the leadership of the, of, of the enemy. And uh, at this stage, they rushed in and they made for the leaders. They made for the leaders. And uh, the next thing was Henry Malby, the leader in English, or Sullivan Bear, I know the name Sullivan Bear himself, but uh, that, uh, killed him, he decapitated him. The effect of a leader being decapitated... Uh, after all, there was a lot of rabble in, in the on the, in, in the English side, you know, and perhaps I shouldn't have said English side because there was a lot of Irish there, and uh, a lot of these fellows were hanging around looking for loot in the cab After all, people, most people at the time were on the verge of starvation; they didn't know where the next meal was coming from, and anything that uh, the prospect of these fellows being beaten, whatever little baggage they had, and whatever was a prize, maybe worth winning. But, at all events they, uh, there was no there was no rest from them they were after fighting a battle now, i I have been skipping over the battle and this took a considerable time and very very a lot of physical effort and marching on an empty stomach and still there was no rest. they couldn't camp now, they set out remember now they had broken camp maybe before daylight that morning, maybe eight, seven or eight o'clock in the morning. And now it has gone on to the afternoon, but depressed on, on through haskra, place called Mount Mary, Ballygar, non-stop. And as they went northwards, up to the time of the Portumna, the weather had been dry but cold, but now the rain set in at Ockram. And rain was followed by snow as they went northwards to Roscommon. At one stage, it's... Um, the, they were hoping to get help to try to rules at some castle. I forget the name of the castle now. and uh, They dressed up as, posed themselves as the royalists, you see, and appeared out to the castle wall with some of their trophies from Ockram, hoping that they'd get in and get some food, but it didn't work. And they keep on. I would reckon to something like 60 miles non-stop marching after fighting a battle.
6: It is very strange to think of it, you know, is that um, the place, the, the route should be milestoned with uh, places that figured in Irish history in strife and in, in war and battle afterwards. Um, you know, there there is something that we do not comprehend that leads a man on that way. Um, yes, it, it, it's a thing that I'm sure. Uh, would be a rewarding thing to uh, think it out and to do some research into it. But it is uh, remarkable, all right, that he did come across territory that was to figure so prominently later times, you know, so that when you go to uh, Father Sullivan's retreat, the line of his retreat, you find yourself also visiting places, you know, like Salahid and Tambari country and Akram itself.
2: At this stage, it appears that... Um... They were very, very in very desperate. I can hardly fit, some of them hardly fit to move. And now they found themselves merely lost on the way. And suddenly, uh, according to whether it is legend or otherwise, I don't know, but uh, a figure appears that he was a, uh, I don't know, maybe perhaps a mythical figure, but he appears to have been walking barefoot in the snow and garment and. Uh, he had a white wreath around his temple and uh, he said, he said I, he, I know you're Catholic, he said, and you have defeated the English at from Hill and uh, he said, I will be your guide. Now it appears that he accepted, if you was mythical, according to O'Sullivan's account, he, he accepted gold. By the way, that is factual. So the mayor carried gold because all his soldiers were paid. They were paid in gold. And uh, he was even to pay that after going from Leitrim on to, which i come to later, he paid the fellows who came with him. But uh, apparently this figure anyway got him out of a hot spot. He told me it was 15 miles of our castle. And he would act as a guide for the last leg of their journey.
3: We came upon it when the end was near, when fatigue and suffering had emaciated our ranks. Dignity had become secondary. We never begged for food, but only because it was useless. But we did steal. Our passage since the battle had been surreptitious. We crept, we crawled, nocturnally. Our dwindled numbers made resistance impossible, but detection difficult all the while the biting frost chilled our feeble frames our weary limbs were almost unable to take up the challenge thrown down by the daunting slopes blind habit forced us on it became a ritual of simple self-preservation as we neared our destination our spirits did not rise they remained suspended and insensible our hearts were as cold and hard as the mountains we crossed, as calloused and brutalised as the feet that carried us. Leitrim Castle was a respite which allowed the spirit to thaw. There were sensations of relief, not of ecstasy. Slowly, vigour was restored. And then the cost. The countless lives ground into the unyielding earth the acts of courage and of sacrifice, the relentless and wearying pursuit, and finally a certain sense of shame at having been the fittest, gratitude for coming through the shadow of the valley of death, but a feeling nonetheless of contrition. When survival becomes like betrayal, is it any wonder the end is without passion?
1: You've been listening to a documentary recreation of The Retreat of Osulawan Beirle. Contributors to the programme were Taig O'Galvan, Michael O'Halloran, Mannix Joyce and Martin Joyce. The monologue was read by Fiona O'Leary. The programme was scripted and presented by Miles Dungan and compiled and produced by Brandon O'Keevain.